I were to describe my management style, I would call it tough love. I believe that if you care about somebody, you need to have ambitions for them. You, you should not tell them that good enough is good enough. What is it you're good at? What is it you have a passion for? And try to match your strengths and your passion with what you do. I compare it to whitewater rafting. The environment is very turbulent. Uh, you have rocks coming, <laughs> and so you gotta be agile to turn very quickly. You need to understand the current, to catch the right current, to take you to the next level. But you know where you're going. You know you're gonna go at the end of the river. You know where you're going. You should never be afraid of adjusting, constantly adjusting. Again, whitewater rafting. You can't just say, I'm just gonna go straight no matter what. No, you, you adjust. You're agile. This is Siona TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Farga Moyet, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of UiPad. A very warm welcome, Farga. Thank you, Hendrik. Thank you for having me. Farga is originally from Kurtisant of Iran. His family moved to Morocco, where he grew up. He has studied uh, at the University of Montpellier. Then he lived and worked in Paris, then he moved to the US and lived in Montreal for many, many years. And now, Varga, for the last five years, you are living and working in um, Bucharest, in Romania. So, Varga, you are the chief strategy officer of UiPath, so you know the ins and outs of the company very, very well. Could you, in a nutshell, uh, summarize what is it that UiPath really stands for today? I guess the way to describe UiPath in three words uh, to, to be succinct is uh, it's a company that was born global. It's a company that is uh, customer obsessed. And uh, finally, the last very important key feature is it's, uh, I would say, engineering excellence. Okay. Basically, uh, a global nerdy company that cares a lot about its clients. <laughs> And what is it that, what are the solutions that, that UiPath offers and what, are the, what is it that these solutions do very, very well? So UiPath is a, what we call an RPA company, which stands for Robotic Process Automation. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a new category of enterprise software that is actually the fastest growing enterprise uh, software category right now. Uh, was also coined by Gartner as hyper-automation. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, what is RPA? Think about it as a white-collar robot. It's a software that can do, in front of a computer, more or less most of the things a human being can do. And that is based on a key technology that is called computer vision. The software, quote-unquote, understand what's going on on, uh, on a screen and can, as a human, do the tasks, uh, you know, repetitive tasks, uh, copy-paste something from Excel to the SAP or answer an email and so on and so forth. Okay. And so, when was UiPath born? How long does the company exist and how, how did the first years go? Well, in a, in a way, your path was officially born, I would say, in 2013. But the company okay. that actually gave birth to, to UiPath was founded in 2005. Uh, basically, UiPath was founded by Daniel Dinesh mm -hmm. and later joined by Mario Sturka as a, as a, as a co-founder. Daniel at the time was a Romanian citizen returning back from the United States where he was working for Microsoft. Uh, I guess he mm -hmm. felt homesick, came back to Romania 
So he started a company at the time called Deskover. And for many years, from I would say 2005, 2013, it was basically a bunch of nerds, 20 or so people toying with technology. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, I think Daniel has several patents in his own name, some of which is actually used by our competitors, and some of which he actually resold to Microsoft. It's in 2013 that he really stumbled in what we call to the RPA and also changed the name of the company from Deskover to UiPath. Okay, so this is a very new category of, of software then? Yes, it is. It's absolutely a new okay. category of software. So the, the, the growth story of UiPath is, is, is really impressive. It's really amazing. So let's talk first a little bit about um, Daniel. Daniel and Dennis, who is the, the founder. What, what makes him special? That what makes it possible that he has created this, this, this big company by now? You know, I had the privilege uh, and, and the luck, or whatever you may call it, of, of meeting Daniel uh, in the uh, fall of 2015, as I was in Bucharest, where he also is from. And I remember the first meeting, uh, or uh, no, I, to be honest, the second meeting, a uh, couple of things really struck me uh, about Daniel. I, I, I have known in my life a lot of uh, CEOs and, and founders, and also I also knew uh, couple of CEOs in Romania, and I thought Daniel was different in, in many ways. Uh, the first was an impressive uh, ability to learn. You know, whatever I would tell mm -hmm. Daniel in one meeting, the next meeting he had already figured it out, and, and an impressive ability to, to change uh, and, and, and not have any set ways about anything. Very open-minded, fast learner, uh, I guess was kind of the two, and, and obviously, as we discovered with time, uh, quite ambitious. So I guess those were the uh, characteristics of Daniel, and still today. I understand he's, he's quite an introvert person as well. Does that, does that play to his strengths? Well, I think Daniel is, is uh, from what I've seen, and he has evolved a lot, he's an introvert. Uh, like many successful introverts, he knows how to behave when needed as an extrovert. Uh, but I think uh, introverts are people that are kind of, we call the quiet leaders. They, they, they might come across as, again, less uh, moving the crowds, but they, you know, I'm making some generalizations uh, because I'm an introvert myself. <laughs> they, they take times for reflection uh, and, and so on and so forth. But he has obviously learned as it's necessary uh, to be uh, leading a company uh, to at time behave as an extrovert. Yeah. And he must be very good at, at catching weak signals, at, at knowing very early on what's going, uh, what's going on and what's going to be big. Right, that's one of the gifts uh, that, that Daniel has, uh, uh, that he, uh, he needs few data points uh, to realize both what clients need, where the technology is going, where the market is going. And, and uh, even if I don't sound too humble by saying so, this is something I share with him. So that has helped us a lot mm -hmm. uh, as we are crafting UiPath strategies uh, in the past years and going forward. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, the growth story of UiPath because I think that's, that's very, very impressive and, and, and extraordinary because this company started in Europe. I mean, that's already a disadvantage as a startup. And then in Romania, of all places, so, so how can a Romanian software company become a, the, 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 the leader in the RPA segment of, of software? How is that possible? 
Well, uh, it is possible because of the quality of the leader, obviously, uh, the, 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 to be open-minded. And, and one of the things that I think that help us, which is one of the key values of UiPath, it's humility. Uh, and, and when in 2015, really, UiPath started thinking of, of, uh, of focusing on the RPA market and, and growing, at that time, uh, we had two other companies that were well ahead of UiPath. Uh, you had Blue Prism, uh, that has actually coined the term RPA, was already uh, uh, traded in the secondary market in, in, in the UK, and you had AA Automation Anywhere based in the US, and, and we were third, or we might not have even been third at the time. And so we knew that uh, we needed to, to go everywhere very fast. And as well, I say often jokingly, he says, when you come from Romania, any market is bigger than your home market. So we didn't do the usual thing that companies do if they're from the UK or from the US. If you're UK, first do UK, then do Europe, then eventually do the US. Or if you're from the US, first do the US, then eventually, you know. We went everywhere <laughs> simultaneously, and we were everywhere humbly. Uh, in the sense, for instance, take our success story in Japan. Uh, we came to Japan saying to the Japanese uh, people and to uh, the, we got lucky to hire an extremely uh, competent Japanese leader. This is our technology. You tell us how to sell it, how to fit it to the Japanese market. How do Japanese people acquire and consume such a technology? You contrast that with the typical, let's say, silicon-based uh, 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 tech company, usually by the time they arrive to Japan, they have been successful for a couple of years in the American market, perhaps even in the European market. By the time they arrive to Japan, they're hardened in their ways. They believe they already know how their technology should be sold and marketed. So they would have a tendency to come with a recipe and doesn't leave enough autonomy for the local team to adapt this recipe to the local taste. Whereas UiPath, we went everywhere simultaneously and trusting people and telling them, here's the fundamental ingredient. You adapt it to what you think is the best way to market and sell it in your country. So you would say that the, the origin of the company being from a small European country uh, gave it the, the, the humbleness, the, the humility, to really adopt to the, uh, to the local markets around the world. Absolutely. But if we had only had humility, obviously we would have not been successful. Our second important value is being bold. And, and being actually able to manage these two values simultaneously, uh, because quite often people think those two are uh, antinomic. If you're humble, you cannot be bold and vice versa. If you're bold, you're not humble. Probably in a, in a single human being, being able to have both simultaneously, it's a real challenge. But that challenge has actually really propelled us. If I were to simplify, you know, we, we moved the headquarters of the company to the US. And obviously, in terms in technology, the bench strength of talents you get in the US market is impressive. So most of we went and hired a lot of very seasoned American uh, executives. And of having this dual value is very interesting because the challenge of Romanian people was to be bold. They had never had a global success. There was nothing to look up to. 
So we, we really uh, uh, enjoyed the boldness that our American uh, uh, executive brought to the company. So, but at the same time, I would say humility was a challenge for our, our American uh, 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 colleagues, where <laughs> boldness was a challenge for our Romanian colleagues. So each side had a challenge, and I think the merger of the two uh, is part of the secret sauce of our success. Yeah. So the best of both worlds were married in this, in, in this company. So, so tell us, if, if you look at the number of people, revenue, if you would compare, let's say, 2016 to 2019, how, how, let's put some numbers on the growth here. Sure. I mean, on most uh, numbers, we have multiplied by 100. So if you take in terms of revenue, 2016 were 3.5 million. Uh, 2019, uh, the last audited numbers, uh, we were more than 350 million. Uh, in terms of clients, a handful, uh, we ended up 2019 with 6,000 distinct logos, uh, half of the Fortune 500 uh, companies as clients. Uh, in terms of people, again, we went uh, from, uh, you know, I think 60 or so people and to almost 3,000 people uh, uh, by the year of 2019. Uh, we have been told by the Silicon Valley uh, VCs that we are the fastest growing company in the history of enterprise software that they have ever seen. So you, you spend quite some, some of your time with, with, uh, with your customers as well, I understand. Yes. So what is it that, what are the biggest challenges that, that CIOs, digital leaders around the world are, are facing and that, that UiPath can help them to solve? I think if you're the CIO of a large corporation uh, or an incumbent, uh, you, you have been uh, digitizing over the history of your company in a way in a silo, right? You put an ERP for, for, for the financial and back office, then you bought something uh, for, for HR, then you bought something for the supply chain, and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you have the generation of companies, we call them born digital, that you know, design their architecture according to the customer experience, kind of in a transverse way, where you have built your, your infrastructure, let's say vertically, they came in horizontally. And all of a sudden, you know, clients expect, they raise the customer expectations in terms of experience. And you're, let's say, an insurance company or you're a bank, for you to replicate that, it's very difficult. You don't have the luxury of saying, okay, we're going to close the bank for two years and we're going to rebuild our architecture from the ground up to be able to do the same, uh, provide the same experience. So you need solution that can, in a way, fast enough, provide the same experience, but without destroying what you have. So you need solutions that allows you to connect legacy systems so that you can give your internal and external uh, customers the digital-born experience. You need to be able mm -hmm. to, to do that fast. You know, people have gone to APIs. Uh, APIs are still useful and, and they have a role to play. And then I would say uh, uh, RPA and hyper-automation, it's yet another tool in the toolbox of CIOs to be able to constantly fast build process-oriented uh, IT, if I'm gonna say, to provide this experience to their customers. Okay, so that gives us a, a, a context of, uh, of what UiPath is and the growth that we've seen. Let's talk a, a little bit about you. 
I mean, I understand you um, grew up in Morocco, you went to school there, and then I understand that your first job was in sales. Let's talk about what is the importance of, of being in sales for, for a professional? I went to a business school, a good business school in France, and, and I would say almost all of my peers at the time were either go work for, um, for marketing, you know, in consumer good companies like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, or they tended to go and work for banks, you know, in, in banking. And I was uh, the odd one out. I said, you know, I have learned many good things at the business school, theoretical good things in terms of finance, marketing, but I never learned sales. And I, I had this idea that if you want to be successful in business, you need to know how to sell. So I chose to go and, be, and, and, and become a salesperson for, for Canon at the time. And honestly, uh, I, I, looking back at it, I, I think it was a good decision. It sells, it's an interesting thing. It's a school of, of, of resilience and, and teaches you a lot because it's basically, uh, I remember later on when I was hiring salespeople, I would say it's a job of failure in the sense that nine people will slam the door at you and then one out of 10 will say yes. So you have to develop this resilience, this ability, A, not to take uh, no personal and B, have the ability to go and knock on the next door. That is a school of character. It is a school of humility because you realize unless you sell, you don't have a company, you have a project. And I think it's a very good, uh, it's a very good start for anybody who later on in life wishes to be an entrepreneur to learn how to sell in the early days. So basically you learn how to deal with rejection and not take it personal, right? Yes, absolutely, yes. Okay, now after that uh, sales um, job that you did, you, you did your own startup as well. I mean, you, uh, you, you had a startup in France in pharmacy uh, software. Uh, so tell us a little bit, what did you learn from running your own company there? Well, that was another lesson. You know, it was, you know, it's, it sounds like glamorous startup. I mean, those, those were not the terminology we were using in those days. Uh, so, you know, my sister was a pharmacy and she had this naive belief that her brother had gone to a business school. He must know something about computers. And, and she wanted to computerize her pharmacy. And she said, listen, there's this guy, he's a, he's a pharma, two guys, a pharmacist and, 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 a, and a developer. They have developed a solution. Can you come and tell me what do you think about it? And I, as I was helping my sister, I got to know these guys and I decided to actually join them uh, since I was bringing the sales knowledge. And you know, they had pharmacy and computer, I was the third. And we developed basically a software that had mini computers and using the a system in France that was called Minitel, uh, which is, I guess, the ancestor of the internet in, in, to a certain extent. And, and uh, basically we had a software that was managing everything in a pharmacy from sales to uh, medication interaction, but also real-time inventory through the Minitel where we could in real time uh, order uh, from different uh, suppliers uh, to replenish the inventory as the sales was going. And that was really revolutionary. And as a result, the largest wholesaler uh, decided to enter this, this market. And, and I realized that probably one of the good things for us to do was to sell our company to them. Uh, the other founders or co-founders, obviously for them, this company was their, uh, their living. So they didn't want to sell. Mm -hmm. And you know, there was no shareholder agreement or anything of that sort. Uh, I did not believe that 
we were be able to be successful and I decided to go on and, and go to the US and do an MBA. So one thing I learned is that, uh, you know, uh, you need to have good shareholder agreements. <laughs> 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 and and, and, and infor unfortunately, my, my reading of the situation turned out to be true because this is basically what happened. The, com the company eventually dwindled and sold at a much lower uh, value that it could have done so a couple of years earlier to eventually to a wholesaler. Yeah. And then you decided, I had enough of France, I have enough of Paris, I'm going to take the bold decision to you to move to the US and go and do an MBA in Wharton. Tell us about that and tell us about how you make a decision like that. Well, I, when I was in this adventure of, and I, I, I said I wasn't believing anymore that we could survive uh, and thrive as an independent company and, and my, and my uh, colleagues did not share my point of view, I started saying, okay, maybe I should be looking for a job. And, and I prepared a CV and, 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 and sent it to a couple of headhunters. One of the headhunters actually called me for a meeting because he was actually an alumni of the same business school I went to. And, and really he was trying to help me and he was being very kind to me. And he said, an advice that he gave me, he said, you see on your CV, put the name of your school in big letters and put your own name in small letters. And I remember leaving him and being very disturbed by what he told me. And I said, you know what? He actually he was kind enough to actually probably tell me what everybody else is thinking. And do I want to live in a country where my name, I have to make it in small letters? And honestly, I decided that I did not want to. I, I'm not somebody who believes that I can single-handedly change the world. I believe that I have to adapt to the world I'm in. And I had this, you know, like many Europeans or, or immigrants, this belief that North America was more or is more open-minded, and it turned out to be true. Yeah. And so, in a way, it was a decision to leave Europe uh, for America. And we were talking 92, it was the first uh, Iraq war, so it was a crisis. I couldn't see myself arriving in America and finding a job with zero experience and and, and relatively poor English speaking language skills. So I decided, why not go do an MBA? So that, that's how I, I, I decided to go and, and do an MBA in the US. Yeah. And why, why did you select Wharton then? Well, I had a very simplistic view of life. I, 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 I didn't know anything about MBA. So there was one single at the time, uh, uh, English speaking uh, bookstore in Paris called Brentano's. And I went there and there was a book on MBAs and and I I just said you know if I'm going to do MBA I might as well try to do the best and I just applied in the top five MBAs uh, I did not get to Harvard so I can say it I have no shame about it uh, and uh, Wharton why was my second choice because at that time it was number two on the list <laughs> and I was lucky enough to be accepted at Wharton so I mean it's no was not more thinking than that really. But these are very expensive schools. I mean, you're still very young. Your English was not, not, not really up to speed, let's say. So how do you get into a top school like that, being, being a young French guy? Well, sometimes, you know, you, you, know, uh, you have some angels looking over yourself when you're bold and, and have make courageous decisions. I, I went to my banker and I said, I, I need a student loan. And uh, he said, yeah, sure. You know, people from your business school, yeah, we give student loan. And, at the time, there was no euro, it was franc, and he said, yeah, I, we can give you a 10,000 franc student loan. 
Well, I said, well, actually, I need 60,000 francs to the loan, which is, you know, a little bit more than 10,000 euros at the time, which was the cost of the tuition at Wharton at the time. The guy almost fell off his chair. My branch manager, he said, we never give student loans of 60,000. Are you out of your mind? But I, I convinced him. I said, can you still give the file to the headquarters, uh, which he did. And, and believe it or not, I had already, I got the answer to my loan. I was already in the airport literally half an hour before catching the flights to Philadelphia from a payphone. And so I didn't know. I said, I'm going and I will figure out the money somehow. <laughs> my backup plan was to ask my parents, to be honest. And, and, the, uh, and he said, you got the loan. He said, you won't believe it, but whatever school you're going to in the US, the guy, the headquarter is an alumni of that school. And, and he says, it's fantastic that somebody from France wants to go to that school. And, he granted you the loan, so that's the story. And then you, you stayed quite some time in, in, in Canada, in Montreal. And you worked for McKinsey, for First Data, for Venture Park, for Ipanema, different technology companies, big companies, big brands. Uh, so, so what was the... I understood you, you met Elon Musk there when you, uh, when you were working at First Data as well. Do you, you still remember that? Yes, yes. I, uh, First Data, which was the uh, global head of, uh, which was a global leader in, in payment, in traditional payment. Uh, when I left McKinsey, I joined them with the mandate of helping the company figure out the internet, quote unquote. Uh, and, and one of the jobs that I had was to meet with uh, a young startup in the payment uh, uh, arena. And, and one day, one of the company, we met them, made a presentation to us about PayPal and, and, and uh, Elon Musk. I was extremely, obviously, impressed by his energy and his ambition. So I, I had this job where, uh, on a monthly basis, I would present uh, uh, these things to the board as well as educate uh, uh, a bunch of 50-plus people uh, uh, about the Internet. And I did suggest that uh, it was probably worth us investing in such a company. Uh, obviously, the and it's true from a from a from a technology standpoint, there was nothing exceptional about PayPal. And then the guy says, you know, you know, why can't we just do the same thing ourselves? And so we didn't, uh, and decided to do the same thing ourselves under the division of First Data that called well, that was called Western Union. Funny enough, a couple of months later, eBay did an RFP looking for uh, for a payment solution. Our payment with solution was still you know, an MVP, you know, uh, a minimum viable product, whereas uh, PayPal was already a viable product. And lo and behold, uh, we lost the, uh, the, the RFP to, to PayPal, and I guess the rest is history, right? So. Yeah. And so would you say that, I mean, that was a big company, First Data, is, is, is how, how do you look at innovation in, in, in uh, big companies? Is that something that you would say that some companies need to do if you're a large corporate? Do you need to spend a lot of money on innovation or what is the right way forward, you think? Well, I have a very personal view of this that uh, uh, I hope I'm not trying to shock anyone by my answer. Uh, uh, I think large companies should not waste their time trying to innovate uh, because I think fundamentally innovation requires the type of environment that large corporations cannot provide. Large corporations' strength is to actually bring innovation at scale to the market. 
But I think they would be better off if instead of trying to innovate themselves, they have a team that will constantly scout innovation and basically acquire innovation. To be honest with you, what I'm saying is not so revolutionary. Many companies do that. The only thing that no company can, in fact, go ahead as a CEO and says, we as a company are never going to innovate. Obviously, that's not very politically correct or, or encouraging for, for the employees. But in reality, if you look at it, companies like Cisco and some others that are constantly acquiring new stream of innovative companies, that's what they're doing. And I think uh, having it as a systematic approach, uh, I believe it's, it's very useful because I was lucky enough in my career to be, uh, as you said, I was a consultant with McKinsey. So I had a schizophrenic career. I was at the same time quite often advising very large corporation. And I also done a lot of things in the, in the, in the startup environment. And I've forged this conviction that, uh, yes, each of startup are like cheetahs. You know, they go fast. They can do things. And big companies are elephants. So it, there is no point for a cheetah to try to behave like an elephant or for an elephant to try to behave like a cheetah. Uh, I think it's better once in a while for the elephant to eat the cheetah or to acquire a cheetah rather than try to emulate one. <laughs> you also spent uh, a, a number of years in a company called Venture Park where you did investments in, in startups. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, you, what was your most important lesson that you learned there? Well, I wish indeed, Hendrik, that it was a couple of years, but I would say it was more a couple of months. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Venture Park was an incubator that mm -hmm. we, we, we started uh, uh, with a couple of ex-McKinsey colleagues uh, from, uh, from Germany. Uh, and that was in the internet booming years. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea was to basically uh, to be an incubator. And we had Goldman Sachs as the lead investor and we, and we had a roster of corporate investors like Bertelsmann and, 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 and other banks like BBVA in Spain. And the idea was these companies in the internet uh, uh, boom, they were receiving a lot of business plans for companies that were too early stage for them either to acquire or invest in. So they kind of had pulled their, their, their venture arms or corporate ventures plus bankers to creating a company that will look at this and, and nurture this client on their behalf. And if some candidates were good, they would then eventually do series A's or acquire them and so on. So we had opened three offices simultaneously, Berlin, Paris, and Madrid to do that. And then we had the internet bust, uh, as you know, and our lead investor, Goldman Sachs, said, you know, it has, we reviewed our, our strategy and portfolio and we no longer want to be in the early stage uh, business. Unfortunately for us, we still had uh, uh, quite a, uh, we had not spent yet too much of the money that we have received from these investors. And Goldman says, uh, ask us, we would like you to give the money back. Uh, legally, obviously, we had no obligation to do so. Uh, but kind of we looked around the table with my, with my uh, co-founders and said, does anybody around the table wants to have Goldman Sachs as an enemy? Uh, or, or wants to stand up to Goldman Sachs and, and we decided that we did not want to. So we, we decided basically to, to, uh, to liquidate and liquidate our investments. We had 12 or so investment at the time and, and to uh, give the uh, lion's share of the money back to our investors, yeah. Okay, so you've been in, in, in quite a number of very interesting positions. So 
Let's move to how did you came then back from, from Canada and Montreal and how did, how did you move to East Europe of all places? Well, I, I moved to Eastern Europe for two, in, in a way, in a two episodes. Uh, uh, as I said, it's, it's good not to have Goldman Sachs as an enemy and that turned out to be a, an extremely wise decision because a couple of years later, Goldman Sachs was the advisor of a very large corporation in, in, in Austria called OMV, which is the oil company of OMV, which turned out to acquire uh, the largest corporation in Romania, which is called Petrom. Uh, uh, which is an oil company. And uh, so the Romanian government, as they were, uh, Romania was being accepted in the European Union, they were selling their two largest uh, national companies. One was Dacia, that was acquired by Renault, and the other one was Petrom, that uh, was acquired by OMV. So the board of OMV asked uh, the Goldman Sachs uh, partner whether they knew of a consulting company that could help them turn around this new acquisition they had in Romania. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, actually, I know a bunch of ex-McKinsey guys who are extremely good uh, uh, and, and they have their own boutique firm. My colleagues from Germany, after Venture Park, created a, a boutique firm in Germany and they were actually helping turn around Eastern, uh, Eastern German um, companies. So he recommended them and, and then I again joined them back. And so we arrived in Romania, where we actually built a boutique consulting firm to serve this company, uh, up to 120 consultants, and for a couple of years, basically turned around this oil company in, in, in Romania. After which I, w I went back to, to, to Canada, and EY uh, was looking at the head of their consulting arm, uh, and in the meanwhile, because I was in in, in, in Romania, I, I, I befriended a Romanian lady, who is my wife now, and the CEO of Petrom, which remained a friend, uh, knew that I was, I had a Romanian friend, and, and then one EY, who was the auditor of this company, were looking for it, I said, you know, I know this guy who's a, a quite talented consultant, uh, did a lot for us, and he has a, a Romanian girlfriend, maybe you can lure him back to Romania. Uh, and this is how I came yeah. back then a second time to Romania in 2000, back and forth 2014 and for good in 2015, joining EY. Yeah. So that was about five years ago, five, six years ago that you started at EY in, in, in Romania. And then you almost like stumbled upon the RPA uh, technology, I understood. Yes, it's totally true. Literally the first month that I started and I, I took the leadership of the consulting arm of EY in Romania, there was a very young, a junior consultant who was telling to everyone that he had uh, done a project in the UK with the, the EY UK office on a technology called RPA with a company called Blueprism. And he was like boasting and you know, all the, his other uh, colleagues were like, okay, we had enough of your story. I happened to hear it literally walking by the office. I said, come here, let's go for lunch. Tell me what it is about. And he described to me basically RPA. And you know, having done a lot of tech in my life before, incubator and so on, I actually thought this was an interesting technology. I said, if you, what you're describing me actually is true, I actually can see how this thing can be widely successful. And as we were walking by uh, from the restaurant to the office, I said to him, I wonder if there is another company but Blue Prism uh, that does this. I said, let's Google it. 
So we're Googling RPA and we stumbled upon a company uh, based in El Segundo, California. I said, hey, listen, there is, a, there is an American company in Silicon Valley. But then we look at it and the names of the founders are, are Romanian sounding. I said, this must be a Romanian company. And lo and behold, we realized there was a company that was three blocks away from our offices. And then I said, okay, go and meet them. And he went and he came back and he said, it's a great technology. I tempered him a bit. I said, yeah, that's your nationalistic part that is speaking because it's Romanian. He said, no, no, it's really good. And then after that, you know, after him and a couple of back and forth, eventually he said, why don't you meet the founder? And, and, and that's where I had my first lunch with Daniel. So uh, I think it was the fall of 2015, yeah. So you started with an RPA practice in, within uh, EY and, and built success with that? Yeah, after meeting Daniel and understanding, I said, well, why don't we try the, 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 your software with a client in Romania, which was a, a bank. Uh, obviously, the product wasn't so stable, but we're extremely impressed by how quickly the, the UiPath team was, was, was improving the, uh, the software. And then I bet the farm on UiPath and on RPA and, and decided to build a team of, uh, uh, I went for 20 people to be certified with UiPath, which was unheard of at the time. And, and, and then when UiPath started being successful, and, and I remember they had GE, uh, they got GE as a client in the US, and GE wanted help. And they, we were basically one of the only teams worldwide that had uh, you know, more than 20 people because they needed a lot of people. So, uh, in fact, my client at the time is my colleague now, is our CFO, Ashim from GE. And, and, and I dispatched my, my kids all, all over the world. You know, some of them went, went to Cincinnati, uh, uh, others went to, to Dubai, others went to Mexico, uh, Argentina, and, and we helped GE. After that, we did that Exxon, and we became de facto the center of excellence for RPA, uh, for EY in EMEA. So. Okay. And then you, you grew very close to, to, um, to UiPath. I mean, you, you almost became like an informal coach to the, to the company and, and to the leadership there. Yes, I mean, because I was, you know, as I said, I had bet the farm and I had a lot of uh, UiPath uh, certified people and we were doing exclusively UiPath implementation. I continued my informal relationship with Danielle, we would meet. Uh, 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 on a regular basis, and, and he will ask for he will ask me questions, uh, business-related questions, around the first round of financing, around the second round of financing. So uh, you know, I had also to be careful because, as obviously as a supplier, I had to keep a certain independence. But obviously, I, I, I you know I love startups, I love building, and I, I, I really was admiring Daniel's capacity to learn, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, I developed a, you know closeness both to the company and to to Daniel, uh, and which then in 2017, he's you know as they were going to do the B round of financing and and, and UiPath becoming a unicorn, he said you know how much more are you going to stand on the side? I want you to be part of the adventure. Uh, you, you, to a certain extent, uh, helped us to get here. So it's a very difficult uh, decision when you are an EY partner because partner of the big four is probably one of the best job in terms of risk-reward ratio you can imagine. And, and so between the moment the decision was made and I could actually leave, it took six months because you got to sell your shares, find a successor. I also uh, w was loyal to EY. I didn't want you to leave abruptly. So and then. That's why then I joined formally, I would say, 
uh, in 2018 uh, UiPath. So what are the things? Let's let's go back because you you advised um, UiPath from from uh, from early on. What are for you the key events that needs to take place for European startup to re, to become really a global success? I think a, a key conviction that I had and that Daniel shared with me, especially if you're creating a new category of enterprise software or a new category altogether. I don't know if you noticed, I mean, if you, if you haven't, you should, you should look into it. More and more technology has become a game of the winner take all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we can regret it, and I mean, those are bigger philosophical questions. But when you look at the number one, number two, and then the, the distance in terms of performance market share between one, two, and the rest of the pack, it is quite remarkable, much more than in other industries. So I, I, I thought it were, uh, uh, that it was very important uh, for any technology uh, company that wants to, to succeed to really have the ambitions to want to desire to become number one and number two, ideally number one, but number one and number two, there is no room for number three. Uh, it's, it's very cruel to say so. <laughs> It's very difficult. I mean, I can even say it myself. When I was at EY, I, I had you know, all my team certified in, in UiPath. To be totally candid, I was bet- hedging my bet. The team was also certified in, in Blue Prism uh, in case UiPath was not going to be successful. But when AA came knocking at the door, Automation Anywhere, and said, can, can we also have AA? I said, no, thanks. That's just the way it is. I mean, you can't have... So you bet on the two and hope for the best. So it's really hard, you know, that's, that's the issue with technology. So being a leader is very hard. It's very important. Second, I remember we had this conversation, you know, if you want to be a leader in tech, uh, again, I, I, I say it, you have to be headquartered in the US uh, uh, because of the ecosystem and the bench strength, etc. If you want to be in, a leader in cosmetic, you have to be headquartered in Paris or, or, or Milan. These are just realities that you can't escape. You've got to, you've got to accept it and not be proud about it. Be pragmatic yeah. and, and just do what it takes. Yeah. How important is the, the view of the analysts on, on, on technology companies? And how, how does that play a role even in valuation of companies? I think, again, particularly in a nascent uh, uh, category, analysts' role is, is absolutely paramount because clients at the time... Uh, they are looking for guidance. You know, of, co- of course, you have always the first movers that are independent thinker of their own, like it was the mm-hmm. case for us with GE that you know, bet on UiPath at the time that it was still a small company in an apartment, purely based on technology. But the majority of large corporations, uh, they want some validation in their decision-making in the early days. Uh, Analyst report for, for Salesforce probably don't matter anymore. You know, I mean, everybody knows they're the leader of CRM. But in the early day when the category is being uh, born, the first analyst reports uh, that tells that you are one of the leaders is absolutely key. If in the first analyst reports, you are not viewed as the leadership category, it is extremely hard because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you know, people don't know it's new. And on top of it, the analyst report says you're at the bottom right, left corner. 
And you have to do so many more efforts to try to clinch that sale or to even be considered by a large corporation. So it's absolutely paramount to have a great relationship with analysts in the early days, make them understand what you are about, what is your vision, so that they perceive you at least on the vision axis as one of the leaders, yeah. Okay, great. We, we have a good idea of uh, UiPath, the history, fast growth uh, scenario that happened there. We have a good uh, idea of, of your personal background in consulting and startups and, 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 and technology and, and incubators, very diverse. Let's talk a little bit about your role today. I mean, you're the chief strategy officer. What is the fundamentally the role that you play in the company today? Well, uh, as the title says, uh, a bit of strategy. <laughs> Uh, that is, you know, obviously strategy is not like I do the strategy and everybody has followed. That's not the way it works, obviously. It's a, it's a conversation. It's a, and in a company like ours, again, it's not like a big co a corporation where you do strategy once a year in a, in a very formalized strategic planning session. Uh, strategy in, 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 a, in a software company with, in a nascent, fast-growing market, I compare it to whitewater rafting in the sense that okay. the environment is very turbulent. Uh, you have rocks coming uh, where you, you didn't have many, uh, you didn't have you know, warning and, and so you've got to be agile to turn very quickly. You need to understand the current to catch the right current to take you to the next level, but you know where you're going. You know you're gonna go at the end of the river. You know where you're going, which is different from strategy in a big company, which is in a way rowing. It's a flat river. You know that you need to be at that pole at that moment in time to arrive at the right time. So strategy in our case is, is, is understanding weak signals, having conversation constantly with Daniel and the rest of the executive team and adjusting our go-to-market, adjusting our product roadmap, adjusting our pricing uh, to uh, market conditions, clients' desire and competitor behavior. So that's part of what I do, but I did mention client desire. So something that is very important to me as well as useful to the teams, I spend a lot of time with our large clients so I meet with them uh, directly, I pitch to them directly, and I listen to them directly. And, 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 and this combination of me pitching to help our salespeople sell, but also listening, you know, feeds the strategic thinking. This is go back to the weak signals. If I hear two or three clients bringing up the same issue, I say, yeah, oh, there is something there. We should worry about this. Uh, whether it's in, ter in terms of the product roadmap or a criticism of our pricing model. Uh, so, you know, and I'm also in charge in part uh, of, uh, of the pricing so that it's very useful mm -hmm. for me to, to spend time with a client. And then I have a third thing that comes from my consulting background. Uh, we have like a small internal consulting uh, unit uh, that basically looks at all the places uh, where our company needs to improve as we're growing very fast, as you can imagine. Uh, we often say jokingly, we're building the, the, the Ferrari as we're driving it down the line. So we make, I make sure with that small team uh, to make sure that the company is scaling uh, from an internal operations, organizationally, operationally, properly, to be able to maintain the level of, of service and quality that we give to our clients. So. Let's, let's talk a little bit about building teams, building successful teams. And then... Of course, the challenge that you have in building successful teams in a fast-growing company like that. How do you do that? How do you grow from 30 people to 3,000 people? 
and still keep sane and, and, and make sure that you have the right people? Well, first of all, you let go of certain constraints. So you don't necessarily have 100% the right people. And I don't mean that to be, <laughs> I hope nobody takes it personal, but obviously when, when you grow so fast, you don't have time to do as much uh, due diligence or things on people because you, we needed a lot of experience fast. So, and then with times, some people turn out to be the right people and some people turn out to be less, or I'm not gonna say that they're not the right people because I don't believe in that. It's like a marriage. When people divorce, I don't think anybody is bad. They might not be a match between some people's temperament and, 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 yeah. and the culture of the company. In the sense, for instance, the culture of the company is very fast moving, uh, change, uh, ambiguity, and some people don't thrive in this kind of environment. And, and, and they might be a mismatch, and that's okay. I mean, it doesn't mean that the person is bad or we're bad, it's just, you know, we, we travel together for a certain amount of time and now our paths are diverging. So you let go of certain constraint, uh, 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 that's one, you know, uh, speed, it's kind of blitz scaling, it's called, you have to let go of software constraint, and then, and then you adjust. As you go, you, you should never be afraid of adjusting, constantly adjusting, mm -hmm. again, whitewater rafting. You can't just say, I'm just gonna go straight, no matter what. No, you, you adjust, you're agile. Okay, now let's talk a bit about your uh, leadership style. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that you're a very ambitious person, so how do you, lead the people around you and, and let's say, what, what do you think that people will say about you when you're not around? Well, I, I think we, when I'm not around, uh, I think probably people say, well, where he's really tough, uh, but he cares. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, uh, when I left EY, uh, somebody that was working for me uh, gave me a book uh, as, a, as a parting gift about robots. And he wrote a little something on the cover of the book that touched me dearly. Uh, he, I don't remember exactly, but he, he said something like, you, you are one of the few people to whom I ought to be a better consultant, but you are one of the even fewer people to whom I own being a better person. Uh, mm -hmm. So that touched me a lot, that quote. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, I, my, I think the, if I were to describe my management style, we call it tough love. <laughs> uh, I, I believe okay. in people, I care about people, and I believe, which is not a very millennial-oriented uh, approach, uh, I believe in tough love. I believe that if you care about somebody, you need to have ambitions for them. You, you should not tell them that good enough is good enough. So I, I'm, I am demanding of my team, uh, but they know at the same time that I care about them personally and about their growth. So. I understand you have two children, right? Yes. So what are the, what are the values that you're passing on to, the to your children? How do you want them to grow up? Well, I mean, you know, uh, first of all, you adapt. Every child has a different character. But, I, I, you know, if I were to say, you know, the key values for me, uh, and then you will see that's the two sides of the coin. I think courage. Uh, I want them to be courageous. Uh, resilience. But at the same time, uh, generosity and kindness. I think if you can have the mm -hmm. combine those four, uh, that is you know, what I hope my kids to be. You know? They have to learn resilience. Life has ups and downs. They have to know to be graceful during the downs. And then they have to have the courage, the courage to change. I have changed 
quite often in my life. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. The courage to change, the courage to say no uh, when a situation is not right. Uh, so courage, I think, is a fundamental uh, uh, quality. You come across to me as somebody who really embraces change, who loves change. And so I'm, 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 I'm puzzled, where does this come from? Because most people are afraid of change. So why is it that you love things to change and, and, and not stay the same? It's funny, you know, it's a question that I would have probably not be able to answer 10 years ago. You know, it takes a lifetime <laughs> to become self-aware, right? And I actually ask myself this question. And I think I, I contributed it without wanting to make, you know, uh, pop psychology uh, to my childhood. You know, I, I, uh, I, my parents uh, moved to Morocco because they were uh, missionaries of uh, the Baha'i faith, which is my religion. And so I was living in Morocco uh, in, uh, in a Muslim uh, uh, country uh, with a combination, you know, so I, and I went to, to, to a French school. So I was surrounded by well, early age by Muslim kid, Jewish kid, uh, a Christian kid. Uh, we were living in a, a lower middle class neighborhood because of the missionary of my parents. So I was going to a school for rich kids and, and then coming back at home, I was with lower middle class kids playing soccer in the street. So I, I felt like a chameleon. I, from a very early uh, age, I was surrounded by cultures, different social classes. So that made change easy to me, I think. That made the uh, change, I think, something easy for me uh, from, from, because of my early childhood, I think. And you speak six languages, right? You lived around the globe and speak six languages. That's, that's quite something. Yeah, so there is nothing it's special. I mean, if, you, if you're, again, lucky enough to learn languages early on in your life, uh, you know, I, especially in the U.S., you know, when I say I speak five to six languages, they think I'm a, some sort of a savant. But I said, you know, really, if I was born in the U.S., I would, like you guys, I would probably would have spoken only one. I just happened to, uh, born in a family of Iranians, speaking Persian at home, in Morocco, learning Arabic because I'm in Morocco, going to a French school, learning French, and then at school learning English and, and, and Spanish, and later on because I, had, I worked for a while in Italy learning Italian, and it's easier because I already had. So at the same time, it's great, but I don't want people to think that because you learn many languages, you're anything superior to anyone else. I, I really don't think so. It's just the circumstances of life. Yeah. Your MBTI profile is uh, INTP, also known as the architect. And people with this profile, they're typically great analysts. They're abstract thinkers. They're imaginative, original, open-minded, enthusiastic, objective, honest and straightforward. From all these words, what resonates most with you? Honestly, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Spinach, they are all kinds, so why would they not resonate? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I turn it around. People with your personality profile, they, their, let's say, challenges are that they're sometimes very private, withdrawn, sometimes insensitive, absent-minded, they can be condescending, you don't like rules and guidelines too much, and you can second-guess sometimes uh, yourself. What are the things that in your life that you, let's say, struggled most with, with this profile and that you have overcome? Yes, I think the most difficult for me is I think I, 
as you said, you know, remove and, and, and condescending, I come across sometimes as, as arrogant. Uh, uh, because I, I have a little patience for, and even I'm gonna say it's gonna come as arrogant. I have little patience for stupidity. <laughs> and, and, and that's, I think, the trait of character that I am not proud of and that I try to, mm -hmm. to, to work on because obviously uh, by being like this, you cut yourself off of people and, 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 and of learning. And that is particularly uh, uh, hurtful to me because I try to, one of the great advice I receive in life uh, from a, a McKinsey director when I just joined, he says, try to, he said, you're new here. I said, yes. He said, you know, everybody around here is very intelligent. And if you want to be a great consultant, you need to maximize IQ over ego. So if I were you, I would start working on your ego. Uh, and I kind of kept that as a, a motto for myself uh, to which I added to the, to, the, to the power of effort, maximizing you know, uh, IQ over ego to the power of effort. So by coming across as arrogant, that it, it, then it, I come across as, 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 uh, as not humble, which paradoxically I work so hard at being because I value it. I know that you have to listen to people. But because sometimes I, I, I can quickly see a situation, etc. I tend to rush to the solution, and that is off-puttish for other people that didn't have time to, to get into the mode, and that could have contributed great understanding to the problem because I just went too fast. And, 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 and so that's, that's the thing that I yeah. try to work the most on, yeah. People that are watching our Leadership Deep Dive videos on CIONet TV, um, many of them are very successful in the career, and, and, but many of them are at the start of their career. And so they look up to um, uh, successful digital leaders, successful CIOs, uh, successful uh, strategy uh, officers as well. So what would your advice be to people that are, let's say, 20 years younger than us and that have the ambition to be successful in, in, in enterprise software or, or in IT of, of large corporates? I think generally speaking, even beyond IT software, I say, you know, you have to be curious. I think curiosity in this, in any endeavor, particularly in this one is key. If I was not curious and would have not asked this young uh, uh, consultant at EY, what, where everybody else was actually not listening to him, what is it, let's me take you to lunch, I would have never discovered UI Patanarchy. So being curious and open-minded, always wanting to learn, uh, having the courage to change if you believe you're in a situation where things will not get better. But that's, you've got a balance between being a quitter. You remember one of the value I care most about is resil re resilience. So you need to know the difference between not being a quitter, being resilient, and a situation that no matter what you think about, you have to have the courage to change. And, and then finally, paradoxically, I will say, do not listen to anything I said, because anything that works for me doesn't necessarily work for you. You need to understand, and self-awareness takes time, what is it you're good at? What is it you have a passion for? And try to match your strengths and your passion with what you do. So each one of you have to find your own path. Don't look up to anyone in particular. We are all have our strengths and weaknesses. 
Try to understand who you are, and that's a trial and error. Do things, and then you realize, I wasn't good at that. I thought I was, so then have the courage to change. And eventually try to match what you're good at with what you do. So, Fagra, what is really resilience for you? Well, resilience is, is the fact of, uh, of being able, as I said, what I was talking about my experience as, as, as a salesperson, is to be able to accept no and, 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 and continue, failure. Not to be afraid of failure and continuing. You know, I remember as, as early as I, I was uh, as a teenager, I'm not a very tall man. I'm five foot fit, five, five. Uh, five feet five, and, and on the dance floor, I would go and invite girls who were taller than me. And I remember my friends were telling me, but she's gonna say no. I said, you know, what do I have to lose? By not asking her, I'm already in the no situation. At worst, <laughs> she says no. So, and, and, and not being afraid of being said no to, I think it's, it's very important. And that's what I call the first step to resilience. Try, accept rejection, and try again. So, Vanger, we're coming to the end of this, uh, of this interview, and thank you very much for your time. Um, so, what would you, to summarize, what would be the one of the most important learnings in your life be for yourself? I think that one of the most important is you realize that life is a journey, and, and, and you, you, you go in the journey of self-awareness. It takes many, many years to know who you are. And then as you know who you are, I wish everybody the, the, the opportunity and the luck to be able to do, to know what they're good at, what their passion is and what they're good at, and to have the luxury to be doing what they're good at. I think that's a, a fulfilling professional and hopefully also personal life. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to meeting you in real life very soon. And so all the best and uh, enjoy the summer in Bucharest. All right. Thank you. Thanks.